Good morning. This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. It's a pleasure to welcome our distinguished panel of government witnesses for this important hearing on Haiti. I want to thank the ranking member, Senator Rubio, and his team for his help in crafting this hearing. I'm proud of the work that we have done together over a number of years on Latin American and Caribbean issues uh, during our time in the Senate together, and there's much more to be done. The focus of today's hearing is on security crisis in Haiti and the next steps in potential international response. In July 2021, President Jovenel Moise was brutally assassinated in his home. A month later, a magnitude 7.2 earthquake devastated the country, still in recovery from the 2010 earthquake that killed over 200,000 people. Since then, criminal gangs have been fomenting terror and violence in the country, leading interim Prime Minister Ariel Henry to formally request international help last October. In the meantime, Haitians continue to suffer from reprehensible, brutal violence perpetuated by gangs who are backed by business and political patrons in Haiti. Homicides in the country have risen sharply, increasing by over 35 percent between 2021 and 2022. Kidnappings have more than doubled as gangs fight over territory. Gangs have used collective rape and other horrific gender-based violence against women, children, and the elderly. The violence has been compounded by natural disasters leading to a humanitarian crisis where nearly five million Haitians are facing acute levels of hunger. Haitian government agencies face difficulties addressing these challenges, including cholera, because vulnerable neighborhoods have been choked up by gangs fighting for territory. Understandably, Haitians are desperate to escape this violence, fleeing to neighboring countries throughout the region in increasing numbers and to the United States. Just in the last few days, we've seen um, scenes of Haitians fleeing neighborhood violence and gathering at the U.S. Embassy in Haiti because they feel like they have nowhere else to go if they want to be safe. At the center of violence, we have to acknowledge is an illegal flow of American firearms into Haiti. We see reports of the Haitian National Police, who the U.S. government have long supported, being consistently outgunned by Haitian gangs. Federal law enforcement agencies have described the recovery of sophisticated weapons destined for Haitian ports, 50 caliber sniper rifles, belt fed machine guns. Tragically, it's no surprise that the number of Haitian police officers being killed has only increased since 2019. We have to acknowledge that firearms trafficking is a problem not just in Haiti, but in other parts of the Caribbean, Mexico, and throughout the hemisphere. It's no coincidence that countries in the region have some of the highest rates of homicide in the world. The violence unleashed by firearms trafficked out of the U.S. destabilizes the Western Hemisphere, and it also increases the pressure for irregular migration. I'm pleased to see that the Biden administration named the creation of a coordinator for Caribbean firearms prosecutions within the Department of Justice in June. And in the Senate, Senator Ruby and I have introduced the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative Authorization Act. We're also both co-sponsors of Chairman Menendez's Haitian Criminal Collusion and Transparency Act. These pieces of legislation would help strengthen regional security cooperation in the Caribbean and sanction political and business elites who empower gangs in Haiti. But for those interventions to work, security needs to be reestablished first alongside a Haitian-led solution of the political crisis. As recently as this month, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres 
reiterated his call for a robust international security presence in Haiti. I'm interested in hearing from our witnesses from both the Department of State and USAID on its latest discussions with international and multilateral stakeholders on this front. I'm also interested in hearing about the U.S. efforts to support Haitian people through humanitarian aid. Let me now turn it over to my ranking member, Senator Rubio, for his remarks, following which I'll introduce our panel. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for convening this, and thank you both for coming. Um, Haiti right now is a complete disaster. I mean, this is as bad as it's ever been, and I followed it, not just because South Florida, where I live, is an enormous uh, Haitian-American community, 650 miles from Miami. It's uh, everything that happens there is both heartbreaking and at the same time has a direct impact on the state of Florida and ultimately on the country. Um, I think it's about as bad a situation as any on the planet. It doesn't get the attention I believe it deserves, um, but uh, I, I know a few places on earth right now that are confronting the challenges that they're facing. And despite Haiti's long history of problems and challenges, this is probably, I could be corrected, but this is probably as bad as it's been in a long time, you know, 60% of the country is controlled by gangs. You know, when the most powerful person in your country is nicknamed barbecue, that's not a good thing, okay? And, and it's 60% of the country is controlled by gangs led by people like that guy. 75% of its major cities controlled by gangs. I think it was last year that they um, seized the Viro uh, port and denied people couldn't get water, they couldn't get fuel, they couldn't get medicine, they couldn't get, I mean, just unbelievable that would happen. They haven't had an election since 2017. There isn't a single democratically elected leader in the entire country. Um, and then you think about the impact it's had on, on migration. I think in 2023 alone, the Coast Guard just this year has intercepted 7,400 people. And those are the ones that live long enough to be intercepted. We don't know how many people have died um, in that path, but we know many have. Um, and that doesn't count those who are stranded in the Bahamas and, and other places as well. Uh, since 2020, 146,000 migrant encounters, albeit some obviously coming from third countries where maybe they were working construction, the work dried up, and then they made their journey here as well, but also a very dangerous voyage. So, and, and look, I mean, the, the talk has been about an international force. The truth of the matter is the last one that was there uh, didn't end very well. I mean, they brought cholera. They were, they were accused of, uh, of abuses against the population, including sexual abuse. So I understand the reluctance of countries from around the world uh, in getting engaged in this um, endeavor. Um, frankly, I mean, we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, we filed our bills together. We have the Haitian Criminal uh, Collusion Transparency Act that Senator Menendez and I have filed. We have Senator Warnock and I introduced the Haitian Economic Lift uh, Program Extension Act to ensure that the trade benefits are extended to 2035. But as we, sp I don't want to pretend that I have like an answer in my back pocket here over how to solve this problem. This is a really difficult Rubik's cube to line up. There is a lot of problems going on. Some are historic and longstanding. Some are more recent. There's the whole structure of their government. It's not on us to structure their government, but they tried to marry up this French and American system and ended up with a system of government constitutionally that, that I think is uh, flawed by design and has contributed somewhat to some of this. You know, security is something everybody agrees you have to have before anything else is possible, but you've got a significant percentage of the national police are applicants currently waiting for uh, the parole program uh, that the Biden administration has created. That's never a good sign when the people that are supposed to be doing that uh, believe their best option is to leave the country. So I think as much as anything else in today's hearing, and I know it's an unfair question in many cases, but asking um, 
what, what is the Biden administration's plan or view of what the solution here is? I know there's been some efforts at the UN Security Council and so forth, um, because frankly, I'm at a loss for understanding uh, what the, I'm not, this is not a blame assignment, this is sort of a, a testament to the intricacy of this problem, how difficult it is. What's the way forward? Because it is having an impact on the United States. This is not halfway around the world. This, as I said, is, is not far uh, from Florida and the Southeast United States. So I appreciate you coming in to answer this very difficult question. I at least begin to get a sense of what the outlines are, of what the way forward is, and what we can do, what the United States can do to be a part of a solution, some ray of hope, and what otherwise continues to be an escalating disaster. As a side note, I just want, did want to mention, both to the witnesses and to the, to the chair, that um, the Appropriations Committee's meeting, we have four votes today. They don't let you vote by proxy for the bills, so um, you may see me run out. Luckily, it's in the same building. That's the good news. The bad news is at 1045, but, um, but uh, as soon as I'm done with those votes, I'll get back here if we're still in session. Thank you for coming, and thank you for holding this. Thank you, Senator Rubio. Let me now um, introduce our witnesses. Uh, Brian Nichols is the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs at the State Department, previously served as U.S. Ambassador to Zimbabwe and before that Ambassador to Peru and previously was the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs, also served as our DCM in Colombia. In May, President Biden nominated uh, Secretary Nichols to the rank of Career Ambassador, which is the highest rank in the Foreign Service. Uh, Marcella Escobari is the Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Latin America and the Caribbean at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Ms. Escobar previously served in this role in 2016, during which time she helped reinforce U.S. support for Peace Colombia, mobilized humanitarian response to the disaster, uh, to, to, to the response plan to Hurricane Matthew in Haiti, and also supported efforts to deliver humanitarian aid in Venezuela. Prior to her government service, Ms. Escobar was a senior fellow at the Brookings uh, Institution and executive director of the Center for International Development at Harvard University. It's great to have you both with us today. Um, I would like now for each of you to um, offer your opening statements, beginning with Secretary Nichols. Before you start, um, the Assistant Secretary Todd Robinson was invited to join us today, but was unable to, to talk about some of the security dimensions of this challenge. He has, however, submitted a written statement that I will include as part of the record. And with that, Secretary Nichols, we'll begin with you. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, members of the committee, Thank you for the opportunity to testify regarding our efforts to address the security and humanitarian crisis in Haiti. We remain committed to supporting the Haitian people's right to a democratic, peaceful, and prosperous future. The Haitian people must determine their own future through dialogue and elections. We will support them to do so, working with them, our international partners, and members of Haiti's dedicated diaspora to support Haitian-led efforts to create a better future for the country. To do so, we support the process of political reconciliation. We train and equip Haiti's police. We also have significantly increased our efforts to implement financial and visa restrictions to promote accountability for those who seek to destabilize the country. We provide development and humanitarian assistance. We encourage private sector-led growth and we seek to mobilize international security assistance for Haiti. Haiti remains a top priority for President Biden, for Secretary Blinken, and for me. My colleagues from across the interagency and I have visited Port-au-Prince numerous times. We are in daily contact with Haitian stakeholders and the diaspora in the United States, as well as the region. 
Gang activity, including targeted sexual violence, recruitment of minors, widespread kidnappings, and sniper-style killings of neighborhood residents plagues the Haitian people. Gangs also hamper the Haitian government's ability to deliver public services and combat poverty. As we work with our partners to urgently respond to Haiti's request for a multinational force to support the Haitian National Police, we intend, with congressional support, to allocate more than $120 million to strengthen police capacity. This funding will strengthen the Haitian National Police's counter-gang unit through recruitment and training, technical assistance, and equipment. Since 2021, we have donated 100 vehicles, more than 1,000 sets of protective equipment, 37,400 meals ready to eat, and additional equipment for the counter-gang intervention unit. Our funding will also improve Haiti's overcrowded and deteriorating prisons, both by building infrastructure and by implementing health programs to stem cholera outbreaks. We are also working with DHS to establish a transnational criminal investigative unit within the police. This will enable us to partner better with Haiti to investigate and prosecute transnational crimes with a U.S. nexus. Our financial sanctions and visa restrictions have a chilling effect on political and economic elites who finance gang leaders and foment the ongoing crises in Haiti. The United States has imposed visa restrictions and financial sanctions on more than 50 individuals involved in street gangs, other Haitian criminal organizations, drug trafficking, significant corruption, or gross violations of human rights. We have designated more people than any other country. In addition, we continue to press other nations and international institutions to follow suit. The United States proudly co-sponsored with Mexico the UN resolution creating a new sanctions regime for Haiti, the first within the Western Hemisphere. On July 14th, with U.S. support, the United Nations Security Council unanimously renewed the mandate of the United Nations Integrated Office in Haiti. The United States also supports the Haitian people as they forge a path for their country's democratic governance and development, including through the Global Fragility Act. The act, the act allows us to build long-term solutions with Haitians while we address today's acute multidimensional crisis. We encourage Haiti's political, economic, religious, and civil society actors to work together to resolve Haiti's political and security challenges. The United States supports the Caribbean community, CARICOM, efforts to encourage a Haitian-led political dialogue, a process brokered by former prime ministers from the region. On July 6th, I joined Secretary Blinken in Trinidad and Tobago, where he urged Prime Minister Henri to negotiate in earnest with other political forces to achieve a broader political consensus leading to elections as soon as possible. Haiti has made important progress in resolving its political impasse over the past year, but more must be done and urgently. We welcome the creation of the High Transition Council in Haiti, which is crucial for restoring democratic order and improving security. An even broader and more inclusive leadership structure will provide greater confidence to, confidence to all Haitians. On the economic front, we strongly support the HOPE and HELP Acts. During this critical time, producers and investors in Haiti, those they do business with, and the workers upon whom they rely need certainty about the uninterrupted continuation of the HOPE-HELP preferences. The garment sector, 
created largely thanks to the HOPE and HELP Acts, accounted for approximately 90% of Haiti's exports, employed more than 34,000 Haitians, and supported more than 205,000 Haitians in 2022. But in the past year, some garment manufacturers have closed their factories and laid off workers. Decisions made in part because of uncertainty about whether Haiti will continue to enjoy these preferences. We must continue to support economic growth, job creation, and investment where possible. Equally important, we must leverage the enormous talents and expertise of the Haitian diaspora, who remain critical to a brighter, more stable, and secure Haiti. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today. I look forward to your questions. Chairman Kane, Ranking Member Rubio, thank you for the opportunity to testify about USAID's work in Haiti. When I went to Haiti earlier this year, I saw, as many of you have, the situation on the ground. Gang violence is leaving Haitians vulnerable to horrific crimes. The staff at our mission live with that reality day to day, especially our courageous Foreign Service nationals, who have in some cases been displaced from their homes or even been victims of kidnapping. But our staff has kept going because they know that our work is making a critical difference in the lives of the Haitian people. Our budget of more than $150 million a year supports economic, health, and governance work that we have adapted to the security situation. We have also amped up our humanitarian response. USAID has provided an additional $112 million just in FY23 to respond to acute needs. We are providing clean water, food, and medical supplies. We responded quickly to the cholera outbreak and are supporting survivors of gender-based violence. We are reaching hundreds of thousands of people a month with food assistance and have helped bring nearly 20,000 people out of famine-like conditions in Port-au-Prince. But we also continue building the foundations for long-term stability in Haiti. Over the last 10 years, USAID's investments in food security have helped over 100,000 farmers adopt new technologies, generating nearly $30 million in new sales and supplying local markets. We've invested in promising Haitian companies who now sell products like peanut butter, moringa, and limes to stores across the US and Canada. These investments have meant new jobs and growing incomes. USAID has also made strides in fortifying the country's water system, which are foundational for progress in every other sector, from health to economic growth. We've helped set up 22 micro-utilities that are now fully functional, with water meters and data tracking devices that can tell you when water is cut off or disrupted in case of natural disasters. Most importantly, these investments have provided reliable drinking water to over 320,000 Haitians and are self-sustaining. Some things are working in Haiti. Improving health outcomes is also a major focus for USAID. Our partners operate more than 160 health clinics. 40% of people who access health services in Haiti do so in a USAID-supported clinic. We vaccinate 76,000 kids every children every year. 50% of all fully vaccinated children in Haiti. The years we've spent strengthening the Ministry of Health and investing in public health infrastructure proved invaluable in containing the most recent cholera outbreak. 
But as our staff in Haiti know, protecting those gains and making further progress will require significant improvements in security. USAID and INL have joined forces in addressing gang violence in some of the most dangerous neighborhoods in Port-au-Prince. Just last month, USAID launched a $12.5 million program to support community policing, provide life skills to at-risk youth, and help the government of Haiti provide social services to survivors of violence. We recognize that we can and should continue to protect livelihoods. Joblessness puts families further at risk and contributes to insecurity. Vice President Harris has signaled the administration's strong support for the extension of Hope Help trade preferences. This certainty will keep jobs in Haiti and preserve and even grow the labor-intensive textile sector. Business is still possible in Haiti. Just last month, we helped broker a 4.5 million equity investment between two Haitian companies to expand a unique leasing model for solar energy. So despite the challenges, USAID programs are not only responding to acute needs, but also contributing to long-term stability. And that includes supporting institutions, including those that will lead to elections that Haitian people can trust. And to make sure that Haitians can participate, we are helping distribute more than two million national identity cards that Haitians can use to access services, like banking services, but also to be able to vote. And so, thanks to our team in Port-au-Prince, our partners on the ground, and the generosity of this Congress, we believe that not all is lost in Haiti. But there is more left to lose, and more will be lost if we do not continue to back these critical efforts. So thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Assistant Administrator Escobar. We'll begin a round of questions. Um, Secretary Nichols, I'll start that the title of this hearing is Next Steps on the International Response. And so I'd like to begin there. We, we've barely scratched the surface in all of our opening comments about the depth of the challenge. To that end, what can the department now share publicly uh, regarding a potential uh, international multinational force uh, in Haiti to assist with security? Um, talk a little bit about what we're doing as a department and also share discussions that you can with respect to the UN Security Council or our international partners. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, we have been working intensively on this for uh, as long as I've been in this position, and the uh, most recent activities have been the uh, renewal of the UN's office in Haiti, and in that resolution that was renewed uh, earlier this month, it called on the Secretary General to provide recommendations for uh, more that could be done to address the security situation in Haiti within 30 days of the passage. So August 15th uh, would be the deadline for that report. And just to, as we're having a dialogue here, that was notable because that's a UN Security Council resolution, unanimous vote. Uh, countries such as Russia and China that sometimes are not with us on these, they were together with us on this initiative, and that's at least a positive sign, correct? Uh, that's correct, Mr. Chairman, and uh, we continue to consult with fellow council members, both permanent uh, and elected, uh, with key peacekeeping contributors around the world. Um, Assistant Secretary Robinson is doing that right now. That's why he couldn't be with us today. Uh, he's continuing those conversations. Uh, 
we are talked to potential contributors to a multinational force, which we consider the fastest deploying solution and specifically responsive to the request from the Haitian government, uh, as we contemplate other solutions that could include some type of assessed peacekeeping operation in the future. Uh, but we believe it's urgent to get uh, forces on the ground that can support the Haitian National Police uh, as they carry out missions specifically targeting the gangs that prey on the Haitian people. Um, you know, the challenge with the multinational force idea has been that um, I, I think you've done a good job in identifying not only the United States, but other nations that are willing to participate. If it's scoped correctly, it's been hard to get a nation to agree to lead it. Um, and that, uh, Senator Rubio referred to this in his opening statements, and there's many reasons for that. Some nations have histories with Haiti that would make them leading a challenge because of historical challenges. And also the, the, the history of other peacekeeping or multinational um, efforts in Haiti have had their own challenges that make some skittish about taking the lead. What, what are lessons learned from past multinational efforts or peacekeeping operations that we should keep in mind as we're trying to approach this particular formation of a multinational effort? Well, I think um, having a focused, narrow scope for the operation. Uh, the security situation in Haiti uh, is very much differentiated by where you are in the country. The situation in Port-au-Prince, the capital, is um, extremely bad. Uh, it's something that requires urgent assistance. Um, other parts of the country, the situation is substantially better. Uh, a force needs to provide security around key infrastructure sites. The ranking member ref referred to the seizure of the Vero fuel terminal uh, late last year uh, as one incident. We need to protect sites like that so that the Haitian National Police can interact with the populace and provide security. We also need to grow the police force in tandem with the deployment of a multinational force. Let me ask you one more question and then I'll see to my colleague. I'm gonna have some more USAID questions uh, in a second round for you, Ms. Escobari. You mentioned that um, in Trinidad and Tobago, Secretary Blinken urged Interim Prime Minister uh, Henri to engage in good faith dialogue with all sectors of Haitian society to look at a next political chapter. Uh, my Haitian American diaspora community in Virginia has been very critical. Um, I won't say that it's monolithic as a criticism, mm -hmm. but there has been significant criticism of the interim prime minister's lack of willingness to engage broadly with all sectors of Haitian society as we talk about a next political chapter. Um, what, what has been your observation thus far, Secretary Nichols, about the, um, the efforts being made by the prime minister to do what Secretary Blinken has encouraged him to do? Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, traveled to Jamaica met under CARICOM auspices, met with a diverse section of political and social stakeholders from Haiti uh, in off-site conversations. Uh, those were under the auspices of, of three eminent foreign, former uh, prime ministers from other Caribbean countries. Those conversations have continued in Port-au-Prince, um, that is a positive step. Uh, he has offered uh, to uh, not seek re-election, or seek election, I should say, uh, as well as cabinet, which is an important guarantee 
for the process. He needs to expand the uh, political representation in his cabinet. Uh, and, and frankly, I think uh, the High Transition Council should be expanded to include other political forces. Uh, there is robust debate within Haiti over how you would do that. The December 21 agreement that uh, he and, and many of those who are, view him more favorably have signed does not provide for an expansion of the High Transition Council. So that's a point of significant debate uh, within the country. Uh, but a broad national effort uh, to take the country to elections as quickly as security will allow is vital. Thank you. I'll yield to, my, yield to my colleague, Senator Rubio. Well, just on that point of security, so I think we all would hope to see a Haiti that has a prosperous economy that provides opportunities and a functional government. But I think a precondition to both of those things being possible, I mean, you're not going to drive investment in the country without security, and I don't know how you hold elections given the current security situation. So security is first and foremost, and that's a really tough one to deal with. Number one, it the the argument for a multinational force, which is what the administration and others have been supportive of, is not unanimous either among all political actors inside of Haiti, correct? There are many who are against that as a solution. Um, the, there are some, I should say. Yeah, I've, I've spoken with scores of Haitians in Haiti and members of the diaspora. I would say that opinions toward a multinational force uh, have evolved over time, and people that I talked to who uh, were against that um, two, two years ago are, are now very supportive of that, or 18 months ago, I should say. Um, the guarantee that they want is that this will not be used as a way to maintain uh, the prime minister in power indefinitely. Uh, and uh, I think that we have ample assurances from him directly to the Secretary of State and uh, to other actors in the country uh, that he uh, will not remain in power and that his goal is to hold an election. Uh, we need to have that security, as you rightly state, to be able to do that. So under what auspices? So, for example, the... Um I guess the August 15th deadline is for the UN recommendation on what the steps forward are um, through the Security Council. Have the Chinese expressed opposition to international uh, force inside of uh, Haiti to provide security? So uh, I want to be careful in characterizing uh, another country's position, but uh, uh, they've expressed uh, concerns about how any future effort would be different from uh, the Minust effort that lasted for 13 years. Uh, the, uh, they did uh, support the resolution uh, that uh, passed earlier this month, uh, and they've said they would like to see the text uh, of the recommendations from the Secretary General and what a resolution says before presenting a final opinion. So which countries have expressed an openness? So for example, uh, the Kenyans, are, are they a potential partner or, or a lead in, in a peacekeeping effort? Uh, they are. Uh, Secretary Robinson is, uh, has just uh, departed from Nairobi, uh, and we've talked to them. They're uh, one of the leading contributors to UN peacekeeping uh, and multinational operations uh, around the world. Uh, but we've talked to many other countries uh, as well. Uh, one of the things I think it's uh, important to, to focus on is that uh, while we may uh, be asking a specific country to be the lead, we envision this as a multinational force right. with members from this hemisphere, um, from 
developed and developing countries uh, with different levels of, uh, of skill sets that they would bring to bear to the problem. Yeah, I guess the reason why I ask about that is just it's historically the UN, the US, Canada, others have come under criticism in the past for these efforts for a lot of reasons, the 13 years or whatever may have happened during that time. Um, other incidents that happened during those, uh, during those interventions uh, for peacekeeping purposes. So I, I think it's, that's made it more difficult to get the Canadians or the French or anybody to be excited about this. And so I'm glad to hear that some countries have expressed. What about in the Caribbean? So CARICOM member states have, have stated publicly their willingness to participate in a multinational force. Uh, the uh, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, the Bahamas have all publicly said uh, that they would be willing to participate. Uh, other countries uh, in the Caribbean as well, interestingly, some of the smaller Caribbean countries do have Creole speakers, uh, and uh, that could be an important resource for a multinational force for interpretation and translation. So the issue here is not um, finding nations that potentially are willing to be contributors. The issue is finding a nation willing to say, and we'll be the lead on, on command. Uh, yes, sir. That, that has been uh, the, the challenge that we face. We believe that we're making uh, progress in that area, uh, and it's, it's vital to do so. Uh, and I would note that any country that does take the lead, um, I'm confident will enjoy uh, support from uh, other key uh, peacekeeping uh, contributors, uh, as well as from the United States, from Canada, from France, uh, in terms of supporting their efforts. The, my last question, and I apologize again because this appropriations vote um, uh, is coming up here in a few minutes. So um, on the security assistance we're providing now, the training mission, the mm -hmm. equip and train and so forth, what's more detail? on So obviously the training occurring in country, out, out of country, obviously part of that involves retention. I mean, all of the security workforce there faces the same challenges that our locally employed, uh, our local employees at, at the mission would, would mm -hmm. confront. They have the same housing challenges, security challenges, and the like. So, I, and, and obviously it's telling when you have a substantial percentage of those in the current security forces looking to leave the country. So if you could describe a little bit more about how that program is functioning. Where are we doing the training mm -hmm. um, in country? How's that? And obviously is recruitment a part of that as well? Absolutely, sir. The uh, uh, Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement uh, has 14 subject matter experts embedded within the Haitian National Police uh, that are providing uh, training and uh, assistance within the police. Um, Alongside that, um, there are United Nations political officers, actually two of them right now, who are also providing training within the police. We work with, with the police to recruit, uh, to vet, uh, to train uh, at the police academy uh, in the Port-au-Prince area, as well as some other facilities, uh, as well as programs to develop their anti-gang unit, their transnational criminal investigative unit, uh, their sexual and gender-based violence unit, um, the inspector general function, which is like their office of professional responsibility to ensure that bad actors are identified and removed from the police force. We've had conversations with the police uh, around um, their growth plans, their maritime operations with the Haitian Coast Guard, which is associated with the police. Um, we also provide assistance uh, to uh, maintain and equip uh, Coast Guard vessels uh, within Haiti. Uh, 
In addition to the United States, other countries provide assistance to the Haitian National Police. Um, Mexico, France, Brazil, Canada, um, just to name a few, have provided training both within Haiti and outside of Haiti uh, to the police. I, I can continue if you like. That was comprehensive. I appreciate your answer on it. And I apologize. I'll come right back after I, great, after we vote on those things. I was trying to think of any of the appropriations bills we're going to vote on have to do with the funding for any of this, but we already did that last week, so. Let, th thank you, Senator Ruby. I'll, I'll have a series of questions. I want to stick with you um, for, for a minute, um, Secretary Nichols. Um, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, Senator Ruby and I have introduced the Caribbean Basin Security Initiative Authorization Act is bipartisan. We believe we have a, we're on a good path on this. We were trying to get it connected to the National Fence Authorizing Act. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that. Um, but I wanted to ask you a question about Assistant Secretary Robinson. We've referenced him during this hearing. He was unable to join today for the reasons that you described. But our federal law enforcement agencies are focused on firearms trafficking. And uh, can you briefly describe what the department's role is in combating firearms trafficking to Haiti and the Caribbean region? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The Department of State has uh, supported alongside with Department of Homeland Security, FBI, and the Department of Justice uh, the creation of the Transnational Criminal Investigative Unit within Haiti. There's also the Gun Crime Investigative Unit and Port of Spain, Trinidad. Um, we are uh, providing training and access to the E-Trace uh, software platform that allows police officers anywhere in the world to trace the serial numbers of uh, weapons found at crime scenes uh, for investigative purposes. Um, you referenced uh, in your opening statement, Mr. Chairman, uh, the new coordinator position within the Department of Justice, uh, which we think is going to be a very important tool in aiding prosecutions of straw purchasers. Um, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which this uh, body passed, and thank you very much for that, um, provides important tools that allows us to prosecute straw purchasers of, of weapons that are used in crimes uh, um, overseas uh, who have the knowledge or expectation that the guns that they purchase would be used in, in a criminal activity. Um, we have, uh, I think, made important progress in attacking the uh, gun trafficking into the region, but there is much, much more work to be done. And as you rightly signaled, this is a vital task for uh, this administration and, and our partners around the region. And I know, sir, that you personally heard this from our partners during your, your trips and participation in the Summit of the Americas. Again and again, I have heard this all throughout the region. Um, we, you referenced earlier the UN Integrated Office in Haiti, which I think is referred to as the BNU, and the fact mm -hmm. that the Security Council extended its mandate by your Share a little bit about what that integrated office does. What, what is the scope of their work? Uh, so they coordinate the United Nations country team activities uh, in Haiti, so all of their specialized agencies. They provide political uh, mediation uh, and intervention. They sub have uh, dedicated police officers who provide training uh, 
um, within the Haitian National Police, uh, as well as some of their own site security. Uh, the number of police officers in the mission actually was nearly doubled in the renewal of the resolution, so they'll be able to do more things around training. Um, the coordination of humanitarian efforts in Haiti, not just within the UN country team, agencies like World Food Program or UNICEF, um, also extends to other donors um, as well, and um, Assistant Administrator Escobari uh, could tell you about how they work uh, with BNU in that regard. Excellent. You mentioned in your testimony, Secretary Nichols, the role of the Haitian diaspora in the United States. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, th I think that's an intriguing reference uh, that there's a significant mm -hmm. diaspora in the, in the DMV in this region. Uh, Senator Rubio talked about the diaspora very significant in South Florida. Talk a little bit about mm -hmm. how you see the role of the Haitian diaspora, Haitian Americans mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in assisting a transition to a better chapter in the life of the country. The Haitian diaspora, whom I've met with them in Miami, I've met with them here in this area, I've met with them in New York, um, virtual meetings uh, from people with people around the, the country. Um, they are an incredibly talented group. Uh, as you well know, um, business leaders, doctors, lawyers, dentists, uh, and they want to help Haiti. Uh, they have economic resources, they have professional skills. Um, historically, we've worked with um, Haitian American police officers to support the Haitian National Police in the past. Uh, the uh, ability of that community to provide assistance depends also on the security situation in Haiti. It has to be safe for them to travel there uh, and work uh, with Haitians in country uh, around the, the broad areas of development. Um, and we're proud to have um, Haitian Americans who work uh, in the State Department uh, and, and even on the Haiti accountant. So this is very important for us. Excellent. I want to switch to humanitarian issues, uh, System Administrator. Escobar, in my opening comments, I mentioned the fact that this latest spate of political unrest and violence uh, following the assassination of the uh, president, um, shortly following was an earthquake, but there has been even more recent challenges. Uh, flooding an earthquake just in June uh, of this year uh, led to 55 deaths but left more than 13,000 people homeless. And the UN indicated in a March 2023 report that gang violence had displaced at least 160,000 people. So the magnitude of this challenge is very striking. But your point was there are some good things going on. I thought the, the statistics that you referenced about the health care system, the percentage of Haitians that receive health care in clinics that have been supported by USAID, the work that's done between USAID and the Haitian government on health care, health care facilities, I thought those were very powerful. H how are these health care facilities operating in an environment where the gangs control so much of the country? Are, are health care clinics kind of viewed as safe spaces where the gangs have not overly interrupted their work, or are you seeing significant restrictions of the work of these facilities because of gang violence in the country? No, thank you, Senator, um, for your question and, and your enduring support of Haiti. In, health is probably the place where we are strongest in USAID. There's over 160 clinics that are run with support from USAID, and 90% of them 
are currently operational. And I think it's because of a, a mix of the things that you talked about. A lot of our partners uh, come from those communities, work in those communities, and serve those communities. So I think that everybody is motivated to keeping them um, open, more so in the current cir circumstance. And they provide everything, right? They provide primary health. They, they were instrumental during the cholera outbreak. They are the first point of contact on you know, response to gender-based violence. So they are really integral to, to, to these communities and have been remained, have remained open even in the worst uh, uh, moments. And are these, are these facilities part of the, the government public health network um, or are they uh, facilities run by NGOs and nonprofit organizations? There's a mix, but our, most of our support is supporting the Ministry of Health in Haiti. And this has been you know, investments for the last 10 years to not only build the capacity of the ministry and build that public health infrastructure, those norms for people to know how to respond to cholera. And, and really, all of that investment has come to fruition um, in, in these institutions that were able to respond, and the government was able to respond during the recent cholera outbreak in October, and really keep deaths at uh, the WHO, you know, 1% fatality. Um, 800 people um, have uh, died of cholera in that recent outbreak. Um, Je after and just, 2010, and just, there was 10,000. I'm well, just saying there's a big difference in how the government was able to respond to the crisis. Right, and, and the U.S. investment, along with other partners in this public health uh, infrastructure connected to the Ministry of Health that began a decade ago was absolutely critical during COVID, for example. So before that, there might have been one-off clinics or people running health institutions, but not a robust public health infrastructure under the Ministry of Health. The creation of that architecture uh, has helped with cholera, helps with the pandemic, HIV. Uh, helps under the yeah. HIV, helps under the current situation. But describe a little bit, because I think it's, it's hard to wrap our head around the fact there, there is not a functioning democratic government in this sense. There is no elected official in Haiti right now who has a mandate. There, there have not been elections that have led to people serving terms pursuant to a mandate. So how, how does a Ministry of Health maintain itself? I mean, how, how does it fund the clinics? How does it provide security to the clinics so that gang violence doesn't interrupt it? Describe that yeah. a little bit. Look, USAID works in very complicated places. You know, we work in South Sudan, we work in war zones in Ukraine, and, and we have learned to work with the partners that we have. And in Haiti, um, a, you know, and many times we work at the level of the community, and we work with the institutions and the civil servants that exist, and, that's, and with partners that want to work with us. And we have found that, and I've met with the Minister of Health when I was there in January. They are partners in the provision of healthcare in responding to the emergencies. And, and we have found partners like that in, in, in other institutions. Um, and when we find those partners, you know, we double down on strengthening them, irrespective of sometimes of the, of, of, uh, the instability at, uh, at the national level. I focus on the health issue because I think Senator Rubio correctly pointed out that before you get to significant economic activity, investment, or, or, or new elections, you have to have a base of security. And I would argue that uh, a functioning healthcare system 
uh, is another one of these preconditions. And so of all the things that we could do while we're looking for that next step forward, hopefully with a multinational force to provide security assistance, doing what we can do to continue to train police and maintain through our assistance this functioning healthcare network. Those are the, the two preconditions that if all else is not working, we have to make sure that those things work because those will be the foundation upon which a political resolution will have to be built. So I encourage USAID in, in that efforts, and I, I think you're right that of all the work that USAID does in Haiti and maybe many other countries, the, the healthcare work is probably um, the, the foundational work that's the most important. Let me ask you this. Um, the GAO released a report in March that recommended that USAID and state improve the management and assessment of reconstruction activities. It looked at USAID's post-2010 earthquake investments and found that despite efforts of USAID to increase partnership with local entities to manage funding, and that is a capacity building as well as a service delivering um, uh, value, the U.S.-based partners implemented the majority of the USAID reconstruction activities rather than local partners and received most of the funding obligated between 2010 and 2020. Um, what might we do to, in, in reconstruction activities? Now we're talking outside the healthcare space, other kinds of civil society reconstruction activities. What might we do mm -hmm. to increase localization efforts as a way of both delivering services and building capacity? Thank you, Senator. And uh, as you know, renewing our commitment to localization is part of our priority throughout the agency. Right. Ambassador Power has stated that, that we should be doing 25, at, at, you know, a minimum of 25% of assistance going through local partners by 2024 throughout the USAID portfolio. And, 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 and you know, she often says that uh, even 25% seems, you know, low when we think that our major mission is to really create capacity in the places that we work on. In So it, that is important for the agency, and it's still important and a priority for Haiti, even though we do have to acknowledge that localization involves more staff, more people, more money, at a it, you know, which is challenging. All of those are challenging in Haiti. But despite those challenges, actually, Haiti had made a, a huge imp improvement just last year in doubling the percentage of funding that went to local partners from 10% uh, to 22% from FY21 to 22. And we have established a new partner engagement unit within our mission to be able to work with civil society and really uh, not only help them do their functions, but also work with them to help them work with us. We know we're sometimes an onerous organization because we have to account for every dollar of, uh, of, of taxpayers, and we do so, but we're working um, to train those organizations to work with us, and we are making progress. Let me explore just one example during your opening testimony. I'm curious as to how this is being localized. You talked about USAID investments in micro utilities for clean water access and possibly other utility service for hundreds of thousands of Haitians. And you used the phrase in your testimony that <clears throat> these investments were self-sustaining. Are, are these uh, utility investments being done with local partners? 
Well, these are run by communities. This is what, uh, you know, what we want to bring is institutionality, that, the, that, that these utilities can not only provide services, but that people are willing to pay for them. And that's what we have seen in these, uh, in these micro utilities, is that you know, they're not only functioning, providing drinking water, but they have a water meter, they have the capacity for people to pay online. So they have gone from really receiving nothing and being bankrupt to three of them, I think, have received over $70,000 in revenue. So they're self-sustaining. And same with sanitation and water management, which is really making a difference. Patients are willing to pay for services if they are provided. And what we have done is help those be managed at the community level. Thank you. Secretary Nichols, I was in the Dominican Republic in October and met with Prime Minister Abinader, and we talked about the Haitian-Dominican um, uh, border and some of the challenges, the, the percentage of births in uh, Dominican hospitals that are to Haitian women who have fled across the border because they don't have a any option that they find acceptable uh, in Haiti. And, and that's a good thing that they have this option, the Dominican Republic, and it does create its own set of challenges. Um, talk to me a little bit about the Haiti-Dominican Republic relationship. Uh, Dominican Republic is a good uh, ally of the United States. They're also a pro-democracy nation, having uh, formed the Alliance for Development and Democracy in the region. Talk a little bit about Haiti and the Dominican Republic now. In the past, there have been challenges, court cases in the Dominican Republic and other efforts that were seen as sort of trying to, you know, uh, close off or reduce the, the historic sense of welcome that Haitians have found there. But talk a little bit about the current state of the relationship. Uh, the Dominican Republic has been um, very vocal in um, their demanding, exhorting the international community to support Haiti. Um, they have stressed that uh, the global responsibility to help the Haitian people is something that they, um, they're focused on, they value. Uh, the Dominican Republic um, hosts um, thousands and thousands of, of uh, Haitians as well as uh, many hundreds, thousands more uh, people who have um, historic or ethnic roots to Haiti. Um, they have provided uh, training and assistance to the Haitian government uh, over time. Um, President Abinader, Foreign Minister Alvarez, um, in, in our conversations with them, repeatedly stressed the importance of providing assistance to Haiti. Uh, the uh, future of, of the, uh, the island of Hispaniola depends on a prosperous and successful Haiti, um, and uh, the Dominican Republic, as prosperous and successful as it is uh, and will become even more so, um, they need to have a, a neighbor that is stable and, and prosperous as well. I just note that we're very honored that the, and proud to hand over the, uh, the chair of the summit coordination process for the Summit of the Americas to the Dominican Republic, which will host the next Summit of the Americas. Uh, as you alluded to, they've been... Um, very committed to strengthening democracy, human rights, the rule of law, and private sector-led growth in our region. So we consider them a valuable partner. Um, excellent. Well, one of the things we can do, let, let me finish up with a question to both of you, the, the kind of wrap-up question, unless other colleagues come, and that is, 
what would you ask of Congress right now to enable you to do the work you need to do in Haiti? What, what could we be doing that would be more helpful? And I'll give you one answer. We had a really good hearing yesterday with uh, ambassadorial nominee Haskins to be the ambassador to Haiti. It's always better to have a confirmed ambassador. Uh, ambassador Haskins has served in Haiti earlier in his career, uh, understands the situation, anxious to get back. We've, we've had a little bit of a slowdown in some of the ambassadorial confirmations, particularly in, in the hemisphere. And I've done a lot of work with my colleagues to free up a number of them. But I think getting a confirmed ambassador in Haiti is something that would be a very important step for the Senate to take. But in addition to that, uh, how about each of you take some time as we conclude uh, and offer uh, any additional comments you would have about things we can do to be helpful? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Obviously, I agree wholeheartedly uh, with uh, the importance of confirming uh, Dennis to be our ambassador in Port-au-Prince. Um, beyond that, um, the renewal of hope and help legislation will be incredibly valuable to provide economic stability um, and economic growth for Haiti. The uh, I, I believe that we're we're currently uh, well positioned to uh, provide resources for a multinational force in Haiti, uh, but the, this body's continued generosity in supporting our efforts um, to aid the Haitian people and provide security in Haiti are vital, and I thank you for uh, for your leadership on that and and for this body's uh, willingness to. Uh, to support that generously. Uh, the final note the, that I would make is uh, broadly uh, in uh, our efforts to promote greater um, stability and security in challenging places around the world, um, resourcing our uh, colleagues in diplomatic security uh, to ensure that our people can be safe uh, wherever they are in the world is very important. So thank you for su your support, uh, which has been steadfast in that area as well. Virginia is home both to the training facility for the Marine Security Guards who provide security to embassies, but also the State Department uh, Foreign Affairs Security Training Center in southern Virginia. So we care very, very deeply about keeping our folks safe and are, and are proud to host the security training facilities in the Commonwealth. Administrator Escobari, uh, how can we be more helpful? No, thank you so much, uh, Senator, for that question. Um, let me reiterate what, uh, what my colleague said. Hope help right now would be extremely valuable. You are correct that there are, you know, certain things that are needed that are basic security is one of them health is one of them but things are still happening in Haiti you know the worst of the violence is happening in Port-au-Prince we work in the north and the south where people are still exporting their goods they're producing one in every two jobs are in agriculture people need those jobs and uh, the textile sector has employed at some point over 50,000 people they work within free trade zones where they have some protection of institutionality and I think those investors are making those decisions now, and your commitment to the continuation would send a really strong signal. Um, the second thing would be engaging our uh, continue to bring attention, like with this hearing, uh, to our international partners and the importance of them um, 
to join us. We are the largest donor, um, and uh, but this needs uh, to galvanize the whole international community for us to make a difference, because the humanitarian needs are um, are immense, and uh, and I do think that 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 not all is lost, but uh, but we need to have sustaining power to make sure that we can continue to save lives as uh, as we try to turn. Um, um, turn the course of Haiti. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I know that um, I'm really looking forward to this report from the Secretary General, the, or the recommendations back to the Security Council in mid-August, and I don't know that we'll have a hearing on that, but you can expect that we'll be reaching out to state uh, once those recommendations are delivered to have further dialogue about whether you know, the, the, there seems to be a, a gelling plan to move forward. I mean, my assessment of, the, of this before today, but it's certainly been, been emphasized in your testimony, is that there are a number of partners that really want to participate uh, in this multinational effort if it's, if it's scoped correctly, defined correctly, learn some of the lessons from some past challenges. I think the, the challenge is not finding willing participants. The question of leadership uh, is a tough one, but the, at least there are partners around the table that want to participate, and that should give us hope. So I look forward to the report on the 15th and then further dialogue with you about how we can move forward to provide appropriate security assistance. Um, I'm going to ask that the uh, record of this uh, hearing stay open until close of business tomorrow in case members who are not able to come would like to submit questions for the record. If they do, I would encourage you to respond uh, fully and promptly. And with that, the hearing is adjourned.